Are you happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Amen. It is a good place to be. Well, we are starting a little three-week series uh, that will be going on for the, well, the next three weeks, because that's why it's a three-week series. <laughs> uh, and my question for you today is, what is the signs of a heart changed by God? What are the signs that God has changed our heart, that we have put our trust in Jesus? What should our hearts be like, and how should we act, and how should we view ourselves? It even goes down to the point of how do we even make decisions? How does following Christ, putting our life and our trust in Christ, change the very core of who we are, the nitty-gritty of our lives? Who knows here that being a Christian is more than just on Sunday? It's actually even when you pay bills, when you go home, when you go to work, when you raise kids, as you retire, and even as you die. Christianity following Christ is central to your life. Being a Christ follower is not simply just a moral exercise. I was raised that way, that you have to be good and do these good things because we are Christian. But Christianity is more than just a moral virtue that you live out in front of others. It's entirely possible for you in this room to live a life that is filled with integrity and your heart still be filled with fear, with pride, and with selfishness and a desire for power, even though your life on the outside looks clean, prim, and proper to everyone else. And this is what we'll be focusing on for the next three weeks, our hearts being, being changed at the root, every detail of our lives being changed by the grace of God and what it looks like and how it impacts us. We're going to be talking about the liberty of self-forgetfulness, that we can forget about ourselves and become something that's called gospel humble, that we become orientated to God and towards others. And it's what I see Christians living in the in the Bible, and it's what I argue that we should be living as well. So I know I picked the worst color for a PowerPoint, apparently, but uh, <laughs> you can see the verses there, 1 Corinthians 3, 21, 4 to 7. We're not going to be walking through every single one of those verses. That's actually our verses we'll be covering for the next three weeks. We'll likely actually embroach upon verse 13 in chapter 4. Today, we're going to read it as a sort of introduction, and then we're going to be focusing somewhere around verse 6 for the most part of the sermon of chapter 4. So with that, we're going to be talking about the natural conditions of the human ego. As we talk about forgetting ourselves, the main and first thing we have to talk about is our ego. We all have one, and all of our egos are broken. Amen? And we so often operate out of our broken ego state than we do out of our redeemed state in Christ. So with that all in mind, let's read our verses today, starting in verse 21 of chapter 3. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the, wor uh, the world or life or death or present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Chapter 4, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. 
But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each of you will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in any favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So reads the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we even thank you for the parts of your word that bring about conviction to us when it talks about disclosing the purposes of our hearts, the things that we do in secret. Lord, that those things would be exposed. Father, we thank you for the subject of forgetting ourselves and committing our our lives to a gospel-humbled, Christ-centered way. Father, I pray that as we journey through the next three weeks about talking about uh, uh, the liberty of forgetting about us and putting our eyes on you, that you would transform us into your likeness all the more. Father, help us grapple with this hard concept of the human ego that so often gets hurt. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot to unpack in those verses, which is why we're not doing it in one verse, unless you guys want to stay here till five. Um, But uh, we're going to break that up over three weeks. But to help us understand these verses, it's also important that we understand what's going on in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was full of division. It's a conflict book. Paul had originally planted this church, but he didn't stick around. He moved on to plant more churches. And we see that by references to people like Apollos and Cyphus and other evangelists who came to Corinth later on. And as a result, different people had different connections with different leaders. Some were mentored by Paul himself. Others were mentored and appointed to leadership by Apollos, who was a great teacher and so forth and so on. But instead of everyone being happy with their said relationship and connections with Paul or Apollos or Cyphus or whoever, the Corinthians started using these relationships as ammunition and as a power play to divide the church. And they were forming parties around these leaders. I'm more important than you because Paul appointed me. No, no, no. Cyphus appointed me. And it started forming parties within the congregation, within the church, and it divided the church as they formed around their favorite leader. And this harmed the functionality and the witness of the church in Corinth. It'd be like us here today in Fellowship Baptist Church forming parties around myself or around Pastor Dave or one of our other great elders like Norman. Now, if we do that, I would suggest you go on Norman's team. He's more organized than Dave and I, so you're going to get more done. But that would be as foolish and as ludicrous as it sounds for us to form around the pastors that we have here in our church. Yes, our elders are pastors, and we form parties around them, and then we don't speak to each other in Christ-like ways because you're not associated with Norman or you're not associated with Aaron, or you're not associated with Dave, it would be absolutely ludicrous. And this is what Paul is dealing with. And it might beg the question of why is the Corinthian church so prone to division? And I would actually raise the question, why are all of our modern churches so prone to division and separation? 
I think there's a, a Baptist denomination to every other denomination out there because they always split. Why are we so prone to division? And I think our verses today actually show us why. Our passages today, Paul shows us the root cause for division is two things. It's pride and it's boasting. This is why we cannot get along in church. This is the reason why there's no peace in the world to go beyond church. And this is why we actually struggle to get along with anyone in life is because of pride and because of boasting. Have a look at verse 21. It starts by telling us that there should be no more boasting, 321. And then chapter uh, uh, 4, verse 6 says, uh, he urges them not to take pride in one man over another. And then chapter 7, he, tells, he says, why do you even boast? We could safely say that the main point collectively of all these verses is to instruct us, the body of Christ, to do away with pride and to do away with boasting in our lives because they are the root to divisions in the church. It's the root to divisions in our family and even the world. So in light of that, as you'll see in your handout, we should be after the trait of humility. We should long for humility, which puts us right up against this beast, this ugly beast of something called self-esteem. We've all heard what self-esteem is, right? We get it preached to us throughout school and life. What is self-esteem? Until the 20th century, traditional cultures around the world, and actually it's most common in all cultures except the Western culture, they believed that a too high view of self was the root cause for all evil in the world. Why? Because when you have a too high view of yourself, everyone else's problems around you don't matter, only yours do. So you begin to take advantage of people, you begin to abuse people, you begin to belittle people, cut corners, and cheat people because your self matters most. You don't care about taking care of anyone else but yourself. And that's why they say it is the root problem. Pride was the explanation for why people abused others, why there was violence in the world, and why so many were cruel. They all narrowed it down to pride. But the West, where we find ourselves, they have flipped the narrative, they flipped the coin, and they say misbehavior, abuse, cutting corners, and treating people like dirt is actually has nothing to do with pride, but it has everything to do with a low view of self, that you have no self-esteem. And this, actually, this fundamental change in thinking has changed everything from our prison system to rehabilitation of prisoners to our, our I can't say the word, our rulemaking, <laughs> and so on. They flipped the whole narrative, and now we're focused on not pride, but low self-esteem. People act out, people steal, people harm, people abuse because, making, because they're masking, sorry, the pain of having a low view of self. The tables have turned from a prideful view to a low self-esteem view. And a few years ago, there was an article that was in the New York Times Magazine and a psychiatrist named Lauren Slater, call, uh, it was called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. Now, I wouldn't say it was a groundbreaking article. She was simply beginning to report what experts have known for years. And the significant thing, she says, is that there's no evidence at all in any study that low self-esteem is a big problem in society. 
she actually quotes current studies of the time, just a couple years ago, that uh, uh, subject all self-esteem, of which reach, uh, she reached this conclusion. She uh, states that people with high self-esteem pose a more significant threat to those around them than people with a low self-esteem feeling bad about yourself is not the country's biggest or most expensive social problem. That's a quote right from the article. And this is interesting because these studies actually call the Western world to return to an old view that pride is the issue. This is what they concluded. The thing about the low self-esteem theory of misbehavior is that it's very attractive. You know why? Because you don't have to bring about punishment. All you have to do is, you don't have to make any moral dilemma problems with society. All you have to do is build them up. Oh, they just feel bad about themselves. Well, we should build them up. You don't have to clamp down. But in traditional cultures, the way you dealt with problems was that you did clamp down on people. You had real consequences for your actions. You actually called things that were bad, bad, not mistakes. You didn't make excuses. I'm not suggesting that you return evil with evil. What I'm telling you is you call a spade a spade. And why this is important, because this has crept into our DNA of the church, where now when we sin, what's the most common language we use about sin? Oh, I made a mistake. Oh, I missed the mark. No, you sinned. You're a sinner who is saved by Christ. Christ didn't die for your mistakes. He died for your intentional sin that you committed against God. So with that in mind, our verses today in 1 Corinthians give us an approach to self-regard, an approach to a self, a way of seeing ourselves that is totally different than both the traditional view and the postmodern slash modern view that we live in today. It's so different that I would call it utterly different. And we see that in verse 6. We're not going to read it again, but it should be up on the screen. Verse 6, Paul urges the Corinthians to have no more pride in one another, in one person over another. It seems normal enough, and it seems like sound advice, but what we need to know about this verse is to do with the language, the word that he is using, specifically the word that he uses for pride, or your Bible could translate it as puffed up. That's the same word. But this word that Paul uses for pride is a unique word. This word for pride is actually not the same Greek New Testament word that is used throughout the Bible for other parts that talk about pride. This is a special word for pride that is only used six times in 1 Corinthians and one other time in the book of Colossians. This word is only used by the Apostle Paul himself. And most commentators point out that this word that Paul uses is a special theme of Paul. Yes, he's talking about pride, but he's talking about something bigger than pride. And what he's talking about is that he's trying to teach the Corinthians and us, his reader, something about the human ego. This word used here for pride literally means to be overinflated, swollen, distended upon its proper size. It's related to the word for bellows. We've all stood next to someone in our church who just bellows out the words to the song, right? And it's very evocative. It's huge. It's loud. It fills the room. This word, this word brings to mind a rather painful image of an organ in your body, in the human body, an organ that is distended uh, 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 because so much air 
has been pumped into it. When you have pain in your abdomen, and I've had this, or your lower stomach, and you go to the doctor, they get you to lay on the table. I might be talking from experience because I like black coffee too much. And they begin to knead and prod on your stomach. And they're not just giving you a massage. What they're feeling for is bloated organs, distended organs, inflamed organs. And in this image that Paul is saying is that it is overinflated is painfully inflamed, that it's distended way past its proper size, that it's on the verge of bursting. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I think it's safe to say, Dr. Oford, that if my organ was about to burst, that's a serious issue, and probably one that is very painful. And this is the image that Paul wants you to see, and me to see, us, his readers, when we think of our egos, that it's like this over-inflamed, distended upon its proper size, organ that is about to burst. That is the state that all of our egos are in. Nobody's exempt from that. Perhaps to make it a little clearer, we can say it like this. I think the image that this word suggests is four, uh, has four parts. That it's empty. Our human ego is empty. It's painful. It's busy. And it's fragile. Now we're going to quickly just walk through all four of those. The human ego is puffed up. It's empty. It's full of air. So when it's full of air, it's empty and it has no weight to it. It has no center to it. It's just this big bloated organ with nothing in the middle. In his book, Sickness Unto Death, Soren Kierkegaard says, it is the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. You see, Kierkegaard said, I've been probably saying his name wrong, but Kierkegaard says that the normal human ego is built upon something besides God. It, it searches for something. Our egos search for something, for a sense of purpose, for something to tell it that it's special, that it's worth something. And when it finds that, it begins to build itself upon that thing that is telling it it's special, even if it is a sandy foundation. But what's the problem? The problem is when you begin to build your life upon something other than God, it crumbles, it falls. And when you try to replace the void in your heart with something other than God, it won't be successful, be it money, sex, or fame. It will always be too small. It will never fill it. It will not satisfy you entirely, but it will leave you empty, longing for more and more and more. You, whatever you place in that empty void that's not God will just rattle around in there like a stone in an empty bucket. Which brings us to our second point. It's painful. A distended, overinflated ego is painful. Think of it this way. We overlook certain parts of our bodies all the time unless there's something drawing attention to it. For example, I think it's funny, we take for granted breathing through our nose. We have breath and we can breathe, but as soon as you catch a cold and that nose clogs, what do you think about all the time, especially at night? Man, I hate my nose. I wish I could breathe. 
and you start making, un, un, maybe this is just me because I'm weird, but ungodly vows, like, I will never take for granted breathing again. Like, I just really enjoy breathing. And as soon as my nose opens back up in a couple of days, I just fall right back into the rhythm. Breathing, never thinking about my nose. And it's the same with our ego. We're constantly always drawn to our ego because there's something wrong with it. Something horribly wrong with our ego. It's constantly drawing attention to itself. It always wants to be noticed. It always wants to be catered to. It always wants to be the center of attention. And when it's not, it throws a tantrum. Our egos always make us think about how we look and how people are treating us and how we're treated. And how, but, but our feelings, we always blame it on our feelings. You hurt my feelings. No, your feelings are actually fine. Your feelings, your sense of self, your identity, it's fine. It can't be hurt. It's your ego that dictates those things. When your feelings are hurt, it's actually your ego that is hurt. Just like walking around on my feet doesn't hurt my toes unless I stub them or step on my son's Lego. Right? Then it hurts, and my attention is brought to it. Our egos wouldn't hurt unless there was something terribly wrong with it. Think about it. It's hard to get through a whole day without feeling like you've been snubbed, like you've been belittled, like someone has overlooked you, like you feel dumb, you feel stupid, you feel out of place, and you begin to put yourself down over somebody's words that probably had no intention in hurting you. And that all happens because of our egos. Because our egos are never happy, they always strive for attention. Which brings me to the third point, they're busy always striving. We've already stated that they're always already striving for attention, trying to fill the emptiness in that void that it feels. And it's incredibly busy doing these two things. It's incredibly busy comparing, and it's incredi incredibly busy boasting. And some of you probably struggle in one or the other more. Maybe you compare more or you boast more, or you do both equally. And you can see this clearly in verse 6 of chapter 4 in today's verses. We notice that Paul doesn't put a period after uh, uh, pride. He doesn't say, then you will not take pride, period. No, he goes on and says, then you will not take pride in one man over against another. Because that's the very essence of what it means to have a normal ego, human ego. The normal human ego tries to fill its emptiness, deal with its discomfort by comparing itself to other people all the time. C.S. Lewis, in his famous chapter on pride in the book Mere Christianity, points out that pride is by nature competitive. It is the competitive competitiveness that is at the very heart of pride. He says this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than the others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Is that interesting? In other words, we're only proud when we're more successful, more intelligent, or better looking than the next person. And as soon as our intelligence, our good looks, or whatever it might be, are eclipsed by someone else when they walk in the room, 
We lose all pleasure in what we had. It's fleeting. It goes. And we actually begin to despise that person for no reason, solely on the fact that they're better than we are, or we deem that they're better than we are. So we we lose pleasure in what we had because we never truly had pleasure in it to begin with. Instead, we're just proud. We were proud of it. As Lewis stated, pride is the pleasure of having more than the next person. You see, pride is invasive. It destroys the ability to have true pleasure in anything because you're constantly on the endless cycle treadmill of comparing and boasting, comparing and boasting, comparing and boasting that you never truly have true pleasure in anything because you become a slave to the system to be better at the thing than your neighbor. It's an endless treadmill. Think of it this way. Our egos are busy trying to put together a resume, per se. So we can compare this resume to others. And it's like when you're in uh, school, you, you begin to take on all these extracurricular activities, not because you necessarily enjoy them, but because they look good on a college application, right? Then you go to college and you begin to do tedious small jobs in your field or you try to, so it looks impressive on your resume, so they'll hire you with no experience. And then when you get in your job, you continually do more and more to continue to look good and live up to the resume you lied on when you submitted it. Right? (laughs) And our egos are doing the same thing. They are busy building a self-esteem resume. The ego is so busy trying to impress others and fill this massive void in our lives that it begins to make you do things that you have no pleasure in doing solely to look better than somebody else. Which brings us to our last point. That's fragile. That can only go on for so long before it breaks, before it bursts. Our egos are fragile because anything that is overinflated and not dealt with is in danger of being deflated and bursting. If we are puffed up by air and not filled up, and that's what we're going to get to next week, we're going to be filled up with something, not just puffed up, we're filled up, then we are in danger of bursting. You see, an, a, a, a superiority complex and an inferiority complex are basically the same thing. It all comes down to the same thing. They're both a result of being overinflated. Just one is deflated. The person with the superiority complex is overinflated. It is in danger of deflation. And the one with the superiority complex is already there. They're at the bottom of the bucket. They're deflated. So in conclusion, the human ego that we all have is empty, it's painful, it's busy, and therefore, it's fragile. And me and you cannot continue on operating out of this broken system. So I want to close with this. A perfect example of this comes from an interview with Madonna in Vogue magazine. Yeah, I'm I'm exposing you to a whole different world here. Uh, uh, In Vogue magazine, uh, she was asked many years ago uh, uh, about her career, and she said this, and I found this really interesting. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I am, sorry, even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, 
and I guess it never will. And she's not special. We all feel that. It's an endless cycle outside of Christ that we have. Our egos are black holes. The cupboards are always bare. It doesn't matter how much you stock up and throw into those cupboards. The next time you open it, it's bare. And this is what Paul is talking about to the Corinthians. This is what he wants us to feel and hear. He's addressing these people who are fighting over him and claiming special relationships with him and showing tremendous amounts of pride. But they're unable to enjoy the simple fact that they know Paul. That they have a friendship with Paul. They can't enjoy that. They're missing it. They have to use their relationship with one upmanship against the other to pull more power in the church. And Paul wants them to know the difference the gospel makes in their life and how it has transformed things for him as well. A man who would have every right to boast. As we begin next week, look at verses 3 and 4. He shows us how the gospel has transformed his sense of self-worth, his sense of identity, and gave him a true perspective on self-regard. His ego operates now entirely differently, which we will talk about the transformed view of self next week. I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to take communion. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you are a good Father, and you share these hard, hard words with us, Lord, not in a way to leave us empty and, and, and searching, but Lord, with a promise that you have given us your Holy Spirit to transform us. Father, I pray, Lord, as we reflect upon our egos and, and how often we operate out of being hurt in those things, Lord, that you would begin to transform our identity and bring us into a close, close relationship with you that shows us that we don't have to worry but, Lord, we do need to serve others humbly like you displayed for us. So, Father, be with us as we go and as we remember your life and your death. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your communion pack, please go ahead and grab it. If not, there should still be some at the back there. Uh, you'll see there's two layers here. There's a cellophane wrap on the top that will expose the wafer, so... I'll just give you a second to get that out, and then the big thick, thick tab will release the juice. Would you stand with me? There is no better way to deal with our egos than to peer right into the face of Christ on the cross. That selfless act for all of us that he hung and he died and he was beaten, he was spit upon, he was belittled. Isaiah says that he was unrecognizable. And he did that for you and he did that for I, uh, me. And that obliterates our prideful state. So as we remember the death of Christ and his life and his resurrection, may we too strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to live lives as humble as Christ to even the point of laying them down in obedience. Amen? 1 Corinthians says this in chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, the body of Christ.
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. In my household, when we have a chance to do family worship, which we strive to but don't always get to, we like to end our time by singing the doxology. So would you join me in singing that? I'll do my best. I'm a little dry, but... Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the communion of the saints. Lord, we thank you that we can gather and remember your life, death, and resurrection. Father, may we now enter into our own context and our work and our home, and may we walk as bearers of your gospel. Father, use us this week to share your beautiful gospel with those around us. Give us divine appointments as we walk into the grocery stores, into our homes, into our workplaces. And Lord, may we be bold enough to share your good news. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to meet for coffee this week, please let me know and we can do so. I'd love to enjoy a cup with you or tea, but I won't hold that against you.